This is The Point on CAI. I'm Steve Junker. It's Friday, the 23rd of February. This is our weekly local news roundup. We'll be discussing the week's top stories with reporters and editors from around the region. Today on the program, we'll be hearing from CAI's Jeanette Barnes and Eve Zukoff. We'll speak with Unki Sanu at the Martha's Vineyard Times and Ryan Bray at the Cape Cod Chronicle. We'll hear from Ed Miller of the Provincetown Independent. CAI's Dan Tritle speaks with our State House reporter Katie Lannon. And we'll check in with Adam Goldstein of the New Bedford Light. Now to some of the news around the Cape, the coast, and the islands. The power is on. Vineyard Wind announced it is now feeding the electric grid with its first five turbines. CAI's Jeanette Barnes covers offshore wind for us and joins us now. Hi, Jeanette. Hi, Steve. Seems like every couple of weeks we're talking about another big landmark taking place in offshore wind. Just after the new year, it was uh, first power sent to the grid. So what's happening now and what makes it so significant? Well, this is the moment when Vineyard Wind, one, is operating for real, so to speak, right? Meaning the wind farm is generating continuous power the way it's intended to do, and it's sending it to the grid with the first group of five turbines. Um, And this is the first offshore wind farm with a Massachusetts contract to do so. So it is a big milestone once again. Um, And right now, uh, Vineyard Winds, those those five turbines are sending 68 megawatts of electricity to the grid, which can power about 30,000 homes and businesses. Um, When this project is done, it will eventually power more than 400,000 properties. And uh, of course, This power is reducing our carbon footprint and our reliance on fossil fuels. So this is considered um, an important step. Uh, Both Vineyard Wind and the next wind farms that are going to be coming online will all be helping the state to meet its climate goals. Uh, The state has some short-term goals, plus that larger goal um, to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Uh, pull back the camera a bit here. What's next for Vineyard Wind? Remind us where we are in the construction process. Sure. Uh, so again, we have five turbines operating. Several more have been installed but aren't running yet. Um, and then ultimately Vineyard Wind 1 should have 62 turbines. So they still need to replicate uh, the turbines that are running now about 12 times to be fully operational. So they do have a way to go. Uh, but many of the foundations for those turbines are already in. 47 foundations have been installed. Um, and they've stopped doing that installation for the winter, but they'll start up again in the spring. The latest completion date for Vineyard Wind is now at the end of 2024. Uh, of course, we know... In a project this big, those deadlines can be a bit of a moving target, but that is where we are right now. Let's talk about the event last night in Hyannis. This was kind of a celebratory event for offshore wind locally. Tell us about it. Who was there and what was this about? Yes, uh, this was hosted by the Sierra Club. It was mostly a celebration, but with a message, um, and that is to trying to remind people to show their support for offshore wind publicly uh, at a time when the opponents have been getting more attention. Uh, so this was held in a private room at a restaurant um, on Yeho and Hyannis, and it was um, it was actually planned before yesterday's big announcement of the continuous power, uh, but happened on the same day. And um, again, 
planned by the Sierra Club. The guests came from a variety of different uh, points of view, from uh, stakeholder groups, as they're called, right? People who approach offshore wind from different points of view, whether it's for the climate, for the jobs, um, and so forth. Um, there were some labor groups represented there, carpenters, electricians. Uh, John Cox, who's the president of Cape Cod Community College, was there, along with Ben Latigo, who's the dean of STEM for Four Cs. Uh, some nonprofits were there. There was a teacher, actually, who's involved with the uh, Youth Climate Action Summit on Cape Cod, and then some environmental advocates who've been very involved in this, like the Faith Communities Environmental Network and the Cape Cod Climate Action Network. Um, Avangrid had a few people there. They, of course, are one of the two owners of Offshore Wind, and they actually sponsored the food and drinks for this event. And then the Sierra Club itself was well represented. Um, so a lot of people, um, a lot of lots of different points of view. Again, one of the things the Sierra Club was hoping to do here was to kind of make the case that um, the objections aren't well founded, they say. And they want to promote the benefits for communities like Barnstable that do host an offshore wind farm. So a lot of players in this local effort around offshore wind there. Who did you get a chance to speak with specifically? And I'm curious, what did they tell you? I imagine after yesterday's announcement, there were a lot of positive vibes in the room. Yes, yes. I had so many conversations. Um, one of the first was Diane LaDuke from the uh, Cape Sierra Club. She's of course says she's thrilled that Vineyard Wind has uh, started up and wants. She's looking to see more, uh, more of the the uh, turbines coming online. One person I spoke to who was really interesting was Derek Adamick uh, from the Carpenters Union. Again, talking about the jobs, um, he says about thirty five of his members have worked on Vineyard Wind so far, and he is pleased to see those opportunities. Um, and he talked a little bit about what they go through. He says the workers um, who go are going out there, of course, have to do some extra training, uh, but it's challenging things like uh, escaping from a sinking ship or doing a mm. water escape from a transport helicopter that has gone down in the water. Um, and uh, they work 84 hours a week, 12 hours on, 12 hours off. So they do make some good money out there, he says. But it's, there is also some sacrifice being away from their families because you can't just hop on home, you know, if your child has a birthday party or something like that. Um, another person uh, there for the event was David Whedon. And he is a member of the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribal Council, also the Mashpee Select Board, where he's elected to that. He says... Um, he is looking forward to more con uh, continued wind development. He supports it if it's done responsibly, he says. He did have some good things to say about a vineyard wind and building a trusting relationship with the tribe. Um, and he also added that it's important to continue protecting the Cape's water quality and uh, that the communities are looking for funding to help with that. So that's a, a little uh, something that, um, you know, as the the wind proposals often put together packages um, uh, to stimulate the local economy or do things for the host communities. So he's he's pointing toward uh, wastewater infrastructure there. Mm. I want to take a moment to step back and look at the bigger picture here. Offshore wind isn't even up and running fully, and it's already big business here. The companies are major players in the world markets for energy production, and they seem to keep shuffling about. Explain what's happening. Yes, well, it is a big business for sure. And some of the companies that collaborated on their first offshore 
wind beds um, are now going their separate ways as they've gotten more experience under their belts. And that's that's true for Vineyard Wind as well, it ha which has two owners, Avangrid, and uh, the other one is Vineyard Offshore, which is a relatively new name for the um, Denmark-based partner, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners. But Vineyard Offshore is going to be their new name for their U.S. wind projects. So these two companies are expected to bid separately uh, for the next round of Massachusetts contracts. And what's next off our coast here? Vineyard Wind, as we know, is just the first big wind farm to be built, but the state, the region, the country is looking for a lot more energy to come from offshore wind in the future. Right. So we do have a couple of other projects that are already partially through the planning process, but canceled their um, their power purchase agreements because of the financial challenges that the you know inflation and other financial challenges in the wind industry. So we'll be looking to see if those um, get revived. But really, the best the next big thing uh, right now is the new round of contract bidding in Massachusetts. Um, the um, the deadline for that was at the end of January, but it's now been extended to March 27th. Um, and this time, um, inflation increases are built in to the contract process. They're allowed to, to do that. Plus, they can do coordinated bids um, with Rhode Island and Connecticut. Uh, parts of their their bids are redacted when we get when we get the text of the bids, but we'll see what we'll see what they have to say, what's revealed in those in these, those new bids. And then the selection date is in August. Um, and then, of course, we will have some new projects to follow. Um, we'll see what's out there or perhaps a revival again of the, the ones that had their contracts uh, terminated. Those were Commonwealth Wind and South Coast Wind. That is CAI's Jeanette Barnes. Jeanette, thanks for following all of this for us and explaining it. All right. Happy to do it, Steve. Thanks. Local first responders spent yesterday monitoring the effects of a nationwide cellular outage. CAI's, uh, CAI's Eve Zukoff reported on this story and joins us now. Hi, Eve. Hi, Steve. What can you tell us about this national cellular outage? Yes. So tens of thousands of AT&T customers across the country found themselves just without cellular service. They couldn't send texts, make calls, receive them. They saw SOS messages, uh, many of them in the status bar of their phones. A website that tracks these things, it's called downdetector.com, says that the number peaked around 74,000 reports of outages. Uh, and then it kind of, uh, and that was around 9am yesterday, and then tapered off. And these are for reasons we don't fully understand yet. Um, you know, but thankfully, you know, uh, AT&T said that about three quarters of the network was back up and running by around by later in the day. Uh, and the outage didn't appear to have any real impact on other providers. Verizon, T-Mobile said their networks were operating normally, uh, but very weird and, and I think concerning and upsetting situation for a lot of people yesterday. How about locals? Did locals who didn't have cell service you know, have challenges making calls to 911 or other places? Yeah, yeah. There were some anecdotal reports making their way to Hyannis Fire Chief Peter Burke, who I talked to yesterday. He said he was hearing uh, from people who were having trouble calling 911, getting calls from their doctors, things like that. Um, but it seems like the Cape wasn't necessarily as hard hit as other areas. According to that down detector site, Texas appeared to have been pretty hard hit among some other more urban areas. 
um, where there were just tons of outages. But Chief Burke said, you know, it's worth thinking about, okay, what happens if I only have a cell phone at my house and that's how I would reach an emergency uh, service? He said, you know, it's worth considering. Do you have cell phones in a house that come from more than one carrier? Do you try to maintain a landline in the event of emergency? Do you have good relationships with your neighbors so that if something happens, you can knock on their door? Uh, or do you know where your locus, most local police or fire station is? Because in case of an emergency, if you're able, just driving over to one is another really good option. We know that some first responders, some of our local first responders, use equipment that accesses the cellular, cellular network. Uh, how did it affect them? Yeah, Chief Burke said first responders were monitoring their own devices throughout the day. They use things like mobile data terminals that help them understand, you know, what type of emergency they're going to and where it's located. And, you know, law enforcement, they use mobile data terminals to run on driver's licenses and registrations on vehicles. So there's a ton of connectivity uh, that they rely on. But he said they make sure there are redundancies so that they're not completely out of luck in the event of this kind of thing. You know, we live in a place where storms knock out our ability to reach each other. So this is not like, um, oh my gosh, what do we do? You know, he was mm. saying like, we, we live in a place where we've kind of adapted to figure out uh, you know, case of emergency kind of thing. And ultimately, he said, like, the Hyannis Fire Department, for example, they had trouble with just two of 50 connected devices. So uh, they weren't so hard hit. Eve, before you go, I want to do something a little bit different here and talk with you about what you're working on, what listeners can expect from you in the coming weeks. You spent the early part of this month covering the death of a critically endangered right whale that washed up on Martha's Vineyard. Tell us, where has that reporting led you now? Yeah, well, it's it's led me down this kind of political path. Um, I, I've been trying to understand what policies are in place or not that's allowing for the entanglement deaths of right whales. I mean, recent estimates indicate that, you know, about 31 right whales were killed on average each year between 2015 and 2019, and 70% of those are attributable to entanglement. Um, you know, we did this story about this right whale called 5120, her life and death, how she ended up on this Martha's Vineyard beach as a three-year-old whale with just this horrible injury that killed her, uh, apparently, according to early reports, um, because we've covered how physically right whales are getting entangled and what gear is out there to prevent entanglements, but we haven't really looked so closely at what's happening behind closed doors, and the early reporting is showing that uh, it is a fascinating, fascinating story, and, and I shouldn't say more than that. Right before this whale died, you began another story at the intersection of right whales and offshore wind. Uh, tell us a little yes. bit about that. Yeah, I've got to connect with Jeanette uh, to talk about the, the, the latest on that front. Um, there have been so many concerns from, from locals and like great they come from such a great place of conservationists who are worried about how offshore wind could affect right whales. They see all these machines going into the water. Uh, they've heard all kinds of claims and they're fascinating. Some of them there's real teeth behind and some of them maybe less so. 
uh, our friends over at Science Friday, my second favorite Friday show, Steve, <laughs> uh, they asked me to look a little bit deeper. So uh, again, I'll be a little bit coy here, but I'll say I'm, I'm working on a story related to that and our listeners can expect it in March. Very good. We'll be looking forward to that. That is CAI's Eve Zukoff. Eve, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. This is the News Roundup on The Point. I'm Steve Junker. We are going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll check in with Unki Sanu of the Martha's Vineyard Times. Stay with us. This is the News Roundup on The Point. We're talking about the top local stories of the week with reporters and editors from around the region. I'm Steve Junker. Martha's Vineyard continues to experience growing pains. The town of Oak Bluffs is zoned entirely residential, but now town meeting voters will be asked to consider allowing some business uses. Unki Sanu of the Martha's Vineyard Times joins us with the story. Hi, Unki. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Hey, let's start with what the problem seems to be right now. What's going on that some people feel needs to be addressed? So, the... Currently, the, the planning board has before some other residents um, certain districts that were developed over some bit of time, and they were they're a uh, were made to kind of address a need for uh, some businesses to kind of um, have places where they can house their stuff, like say landscapers and their vehicles and what have you, and. There's just not really anywhere in the town that has that level of um, those types of districts. So they're trying to make those areas in the town. But some folks aren't really in favor of that, partly because, um, you know, as we said, there's no room. So some of the businesses have just been kind of placing their materials where they weren't really allowed to. And there are some concerns that this could maybe open floodgates of sorts mm. to just unmitigate that of things or just have more difficulties, and although it is a, a method that they're trying to use to you know, manage things. So Oak Bluffs, which, as I said, is zoned almost entirely residential now, uh, also has some of the big you know, institutions on the island. There's the high school there, the hospital, the YMCA, but there's no provisions for people like landscapers and contractors to be able to have uh, yards where they keep their materials and, and and their machinery. And there's also no provisions for professional space. Is that right? What would that? What kinds of professional businesses would would be looking for space in the town? Well, there are. Some areas where they can keep their stuff, but they just don't. You know, people are trying to expand their mm. services, and they just don't have as much room as you know they might need, and that comes into conflict with some of their neighbors, especially, say, because one of the proposed areas that's still undergoing a public hearing process could bring about mi- like some mining into the town, depending on where that may be. Mining, and not people. Yeah, mining. A little bit like, Ex- ex- yeah, so, explain that. Like, what kind of mining would be going on in Oak Bluffs? Well, you know, we ain't going to have coal or anything like that. But, for example, um, there is a business on the island that has a sand pit. Um, that one's more in Vineyard Haven. But then it's a large, you know, it takes up a, bit, a fair bit of space. And people are concerned this could affect their, like, you know, their property values or even just the conservation or agricultural areas, like, potentially could be impacted is what the saw process is. But you are also right, Steve. They, it's not just agri, uh, excuse me, 
it's not just landscaping or other types of businesses. There are also diff a separate um, set of uh, districts that the planning board has before voters or wants to have before voters about the professional services. That could be something like lawyers or surgeons, what have you. And uh, that might bring in some more availability of service to the town and possibly the island. But hmm. so a lot of the complaints were more towards the um, the light industrial mixed-use areas. So the idea now is to create some what they call overlay districts for zoning so that within certain parts of the town, landscapers and contractors could be able to keep some of their equipment and uh, lawyers and doctors and accountants could be able to set up businesses in other parts of town. But the concern from some residents that seems to be coming forward here is that, you know, when people bought their houses, they assumed they were in residential neighborhoods. They assumed that they weren't going to have contractor yards right behind them. Is that right in their concern for what it would mean for their residential neighborhoods? That is right. Yeah, they're trying to um, yeah, make sure that there's a process for things. And, yeah, there's a big concern about whether this will impact their residential status in the area. and But also... There are folks who bring up other um, concerns, such as how will this, if we have increased levels of, well, industry on the island, how will this affect the environment? How will this impact our water supply? But also, it's just, there is also another kind of factor is there's a little part that also kind of, there's a little part of Oplus also just into Tisbury. Mm -hmm. And... There are some people from that, from the you know the neighboring town, Tisbury, who are also kind of coming in with their concerns because they're like, how is this going to affect us as well? So some of the people who are not so keen about this are saying maybe this shouldn't be just an Oplus um, approach. Maybe this should be an island-wide approach in how we handle um, industrial or commercial districts. Uh, the the topic is coming up at town meeting. That's where people will be able to weigh in on this, and that's in April? That is on April 9th for town of Oak Bluff. Okay. Listen, I want to ask you about another story in the paper this week because I found this so interesting. A freight shipping company is proposing to add service between Martha's Vineyard and New Bedford, and this would be freight ferries. Is that right, for carrying trucks? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, so a New Bedford company called 41 North Offshore, they brought a proposal to the Steamship Authority offering to um, essentially make a route between New Bedford and Vineyard Haven to, to carry uh, and trucking and whatnot, freight services to the island. They already do stuff. Uh, they already have a route between New Bedford and Nantucket. But, you know, not everyone's on board with this proposal. Um, well, with, um, tell us about that, because the Steamship Authority has sort of entertained the idea of connecting truck ferry service from New Bedford to the vineyard before. Sometimes it seems to have expressed interest in that. And here's a company coming forward offering to run this. But it didn't get uh, the warmest welcome, it sounds like, at the Steamship Authority Board of Governors meeting. No, that's true. Yeah, they did have some they did express the board did express some interest in the beginning of it. But, you know, there are some folks who came forward saying maybe this should be reconsidered. For example, Tisbury officials, town officials, came forward saying 
they have concerns that this might increase the level of truck traffic into Vineyard Haven. And this has already been kind of a concern for the town because the area where the steam, where trucks come off of the steamships is already, they're kind of tight. So if you go down Water Street or the Five Corners area, and they got to make wide turns, and sometimes you got to, and I've done it before, I've, I've had to back up my car a little bit if mm. there's a big semi coming through on Five Corners. And, you know, that's something that's a concern for folks. And there was also another local company who came forward saying, hey, we already do some supplemental transportation um, services with the Steamship Authority, and we have the capacity to increase. And we already have things set up right here in the New Haven, and that's a very telling. And then uh, there was a Steamship Board representative that you report, Robert Jones. He's the Barnstable representative. He said that he thought the bigger picture issue, the bigger picture here was that adding this service would be decrease, decreasing freight traffic for the Steamship Authority. It's He says it could affect the bottom line so that essentially they'd be losing money by uh, opening this new line of service to Martha's Vineyard and New Bedford. That's definitely a consideration because, you know, the Steamship, they operate kind of like a business, although they're like a, they're in that weird grades in between government and business but yeah that is a consideration for the board and jones also kind of mentioned a point that this might be welcomed in places such in like the more mainland poor communities such as woods hole and air which is a community that has been kind of fighting for a long time to reduce truck traffic especially the early morning ones coming down the smaller woods hole areas but he said you know if if another company comes in, he's he brought the point, could this increase costs for you know, the everyday islander? It wasn't explored as much during the meeting, but that was a consideration that he brought up. It, it is interesting because, uh, you know, you, you have this third-party company coming forward looking to do this, and, they're, and the steamship's expressing a concern about a loss of revenue, which, you know, sounds a little bit like a monopoly service seeking to protect itself at the expense of some of the people around there, people on the mainland. It's it's interesting conversation that I'm sure we're going to hear more about. That's Unki Sanu of the Martha's Vineyard Times. Unki, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. A historic lifeboat used in one of the Coast Guard's most famous and daring rescues is in need of preservation. A plan is on the table for creating a boathouse shelter for it in Orleans, but that's run into some difficulty. Ryan Bray of the Cape Cod Chronicle joins us with the story. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Steve. This is the lifeboat that was used in the rescue of the crew of the Pendleton. Is that right? Yeah, very much so. Yep, that's this, uh, the CG 36500 uh, lifeboat um, was used in that historic rescue from 1952. Um, it's sort of been immortalized more recently in the film The Finest Hours. Um, but suffice to say, it's it's a very important piece of um, not only local maritime history, but really um, national history in a way. Um, but the vessel's old. It's 78 years old. It's um, historically been docked outside, but its days of staying in the water are kind of numbered. And that's where this effort to sort of fund this new boathouse to um, give it kind of a, a year-round home out of the water, um, you know, has come into play. Uh, but 
you know, there's various funding sources that are being um, pursued, you know, to cover mm. the three, the, the estimated cost, $3 million to $3.5 million. And 250000 of that was, uh, they were trying to get Community Preservation Act money. Um, but that's kind of uh, for... <laughs> That's sort of in the short term kind of uh, hit a hurdle. So let's talk about that. They wanted to build a boathouse to protect the boat and also to kind of have an exhibit space for it in right there in Orleans. Uh, and they were getting applying for community preservation funds. But uh, explain what some of the problem was as they went in front of the, the, the folks who give out those funds who seemed quite in support of the project. Yeah, the Community Preservation Committee is by no means against the project. It, it, it fits cleanly in, in the wheelhouse of historic preservation, which is one of the four categories these committees um, are allowed to allocate their annual funding to. Uh, but that site is really kind of drawn a lot of attention from different groups. Um, there's also an effort underway in Orleans to build a new snow library, which is an aging, the, you know, the, the current library is itself is old and in need of replacement. Um, and the folks that are behind that effort are applying for a considerable state grant that could cover up to 40% of the cost of you know, building a new facility, which is huge. Uh, but a condition of that grant is that they apply for two sites. And one of those site options is the, is the same site that they're looking to build the boathouse. So the Community Preservation Committee was just sort of exercising caution, at least for the spring, and saying, we don't want to do anything right now that might jeopardize the library's pursuit of that um, grant, which could be significant. Where does that leave the folks who are looking to preserve this historic lifeboat? You know, they're going to do what they can. I think, you know, they're certainly not – they're looking at it as a temporary delay, Um you know they're gonna they're still moving forward with sort of finalized designs for what they're envisioning for the for the boat but in terms of fundraising they really can't kick off a, a significant capital campaign to raise the money they need until they have a site so they're hoping that you know um for the fall they could just reapply for funding in the fall through the cpc um but there's you know there was some interesting uh developments earlier this month because some residents are, are urging the town to find a way to come up with that $250,000 through some other avenue and still bring it to town meeting in May. Again, emphasizing the point it's an aging boat. It can't really stay in the water much longer. Um, they just don't want to risk losing this historic resource. So it, it remains to be seen what could happen, but uh, they're hoping on the far end that hopefully Come the fall, maybe they can get that funding they need and really start moving things forward. That's Ryan Bray of the Cape Cod Chronicle. Ryan, thanks. All right, Steve. Thanks. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm Steve Junker. We're going to take a break now. When we come back, we'll hear from Ed Miller of the Provincetown Independent. Stay with us. This is the local news roundup on The Point. I'm Steve Junker. We are talking about the top local stories of the week with colleagues in the print and digital media. A religious congregation on the Outer Cape is facing eviction. Now members of the wider community have come forward to try to help find a solution. Ed Miller of the Provincetown Independent joins us to explain what's going on. Hi, Ed. 
Good morning, Steve. Hey, start by telling us about Chapel on the Pond, which is the group here that may not have a place to meet without some intervention. Who are they and, and, and what are they doing there? Well, the Chapel on the Pond is a congregation of uh, primarily Jamaican people. It's uh, led by pastors David Brown and Carlene Brown, his wife, um, who live in East Ham. And uh, they've been um, uh, directing the congregation since 2017, uh, when there were just a few parishioners. But they built it up to a very vibrant congregation of uh, about 50 or more people and they have uh, uh, really wonderful services every Sunday Uh, the chapel which is on Pond Road in North Truro um, was is a former Catholic church it was uh, uh, Our Lady of Perpetual Help but the, uh, the the diocese sold the property back in 2009 to a couple named Bob and Kathy Vallow, who live in Vail, Colorado. And uh, uh, they, the Vallows told uh, Pastor Brown in January that they had decided to, quote, prayerfully repurpose the property and that they would be selling it and that the, the chapel on the pond would have to find another place to have its services. Mm. So... Uh... The folks, uh, the congregation has been at this one location all this time and really built up and feels like it's their home. Now they're looking at, is there a chance for them to purchase this property if it's coming on the market? What does it mean that this property is going to come on the market? Well, it's um, it, it, it's a real crisis for the congregation. Uh, these, are, um, these are working people uh, who do not have... Uh, a lot of money. Uh, they, uh, uh, they, the, the, the church was sold back in 2009 to the Vallos for $385,000. But now they say that they're planning to uh, list it on April 1st uh, for somewhere more than $1.5 million. One and a half and million. One and a half million, exactly. Uh, and uh, so this was a, a huge shock to the, the people in the in, in the congregation. But what's happening is that um, this past Sunday, there was a meeting uh, at the chapel. About 25 people came to, to brainstorm ideas for keeping the congregation housed by acquiring the property. Um, and uh, a, a number of people were there from the Unitarian Universalist Church in Provincetown, uh, Reverend Kate Wilkinson and uh, one of uh, the Unitarian parishioners, Kate Wallace Rogers. Um, uh, Wallace Rogers said the Jamaican community has shown up very strongly to help maintain the businesses on the Outer Cape, especially during the pandemic when businesses had very few workers. This would be a fabulous step in the right direction to support a community that relies on this beautiful and historic building. And Reverend Wilkinson uh, said, you know, let's get a group of people together to buy it. So there's an effort underway. Um, Also at that meeting was Fred Gechter, who is the chairman of the Truro Conservation Trust. And he said that he planned to bring it up with his uh, board this week 
to see if they could uh, help with an effort to collect the money that might be needed to purchase the property. But it's a lot of money. It, it's a lot of money. Uh, the folks who own the part of the subtext here is the folks who own the property now, the Valos, are themselves uh, missionaries. Is that right? Self-described? <laughs> yes. They uh, So they established a nonprofit organization called Boathouse Ministries. And um, as I said, they're based in Vail, Colorado, but they're, they're, they, they say that they're itinerant evangelists and they're based on a yacht, um, the Vesper, which is a 68-foot Nordhaven yacht. Um, and they recently returned from an extended uh, evangelical trip in the Car- – I'm sorry, in the Mediterranean. Um, and uh, it, the, since uh, we first reported this story back in January – the Boathouse Ministries website has been taken down from the web, and they've stopped answering questions from us. So uh, there are a lot of questions uh, related to the uh, the Valos operations there. And, and uh, there was some hope within even the folks who met to try to help the the, the congregation here in Truro that perhaps the Valos would. Uh, be willing to find an accommodation with the the church that's there now, whether that's keeping them there or or making a price that the church could more easily approach as opposed to one and a half million dollars for the property. Yeah. Uh, Two people, um, Kate Wallace Rogers, who I mentioned uh, before, and um, also Barbara uh, Wojcik, who's a uh, Truro State broker, um, who has sometimes worshipped at the chapel on the pond, both contacted the Valos to see if they would entertain an early offer on the property, but they were turned away. Um, and uh, they were, you know, the Valos uh, said, uh, thank you for your interest. Uh, you know, we will certainly entertain an offer after the the property has been listed. And it seems clear that they want to, Test the market and see how much they can uh, they can get for the for the church. Mm. Uh, you can read about it in the Provincetown Independent. Ed Miller, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. Beacon Hill was fairly quiet this school vacation week. That said, our statehouse correspondent Katie Lannon had other issues on her radar. She spoke with CAI's Dan Tritle. Here's their conversation. Morning, Katie. Hey, Dan. Good morning. First, U.S. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren running for re-election, and now she has a new Republican challenger. That's right. John Deaton, who's a, a lawyer and an advocate for, for cryptocurrency, officially jumped into the Senate race this week, uh, and it's something he'd suggested as recently as December when he was still living in Rhode Island, wondering on social media if he should move to Massachusetts, where he's got some legal ties and practicing law and and run against Warren. That was prompted by some comments she made about cryptocurrency and the need for regulation there. But he he didn't focus on that theme in his launch video out this week, talking about fighting for the little guy and and portraying himself as somewhat of an underdog coming from a, a background of child poverty, going on to be in the Marines and practice, start his own law practice. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, race shapes up. Elizabeth Warren's already fundraising off the fact that he really just moved here from Rhode Island and 
posing the question, is there anyone in, in Massachusetts long term who's willing to take her on? Meantime, a confirmation hearing yesterday for Governor Healy's Supreme Judicial Court nominee, and it's raised concern in some circles as the nominee is a former romantic partner. What can you tell us? Yeah, concerns from some, including the Massachusetts Republican Party, but not a lot of concerns, it seems like, from the Governor's Council, which is the the panel of elected officials who confirm judges here in Massachusetts. Judge Gabrielle Wolohojan, who's a a 16-year appeals court judge, widely respected in the the legal community, got a pretty warm reception from the council yesterday. Uh, At least four of them suggested they were planning to vote for her. And no one really pressed into her past uh, romantic relationship with the governor and the ties there. They lived together while Healy was serving as attorney general. And But, you know, the council said they were more focused on her, her record, her reputation as someone who's fair and practices law, uh, works from the bench with integrity. So they did raise concern. You know, some people brought up the optics. A general question of whether she would need to recuse herself on on any cases, not specifically tied to Healy, and the the judge said she'd consider that on a on a case by case basis. It's confirmed. And also, healthcare concerns in the news. Governor Healy encouraging Steward Healthcare to leave Massachusetts, demanding they turn over financial details. Yeah, this has been you know this healthcare system has really their financial turmoil has been a big topic in headlines lately. Uh, Governor Healy has given them really a, a deadline of this week to turn over some financial details, which Steward contends that they've been providing information to the state, but it seems like there are state officials who are looking for more. And the governor wrote in a pretty sharply worded letter that she wants them to kind of move beyond talking about what's next and move on to transferring it. There are several hospitals operating in Massachusetts to, to new operators in order to make sure that patients' needs are, are going to continue to be met. They're, the Department of Public Health has been monitoring the, the staff levels and the supply levels uh, in the various steward hospitals, so definitely something worth watching here as we see whether there's a major transaction that could affect uh, the state's healthcare market quite significantly. Katie Lannon covers the State House for CAI. Thanks for all your work, Katie, and thanks for your time. Thank you. And that is CAI's Dan Tridel speaking with our State House correspondent, Katie Lannon. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm Steve Junker. Rising sea levels and intensifying storms are reshaping the South Coast, impacts of our warming planet and changing climate. Adam Goldstein of the New Bedford Light has a multi-part story examining how towns are taking on the challenge. He joins us now. Hi, Adam. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. There's a lot to unpack here. Let's start with last month, January. We saw some powerful storms that came from the south and really laid into the coastal towns. Describe some of what happened. Absolutely, Steve. So as you mentioned, I mean, these most recent January and December storms really uh, have driven home some of the impacts of uh, changing coastal conditions for south coast communities. Uh, In Westport, for example, uh, I know that uh, surging storms Surging waves and winter storms really eroded significant feet of sand from East Beach and its waterfront lots. I spoke with Amy Messer, the assistant town planner, who said that some of the owners on those waterfront lots really don't have much beach left. And mm. these, uh, these waters also pummeled East Beach Road with cobble, uh, destroying the roadway. Uh, and some waves even breached the wet conservation area. And 
the damage wasn't really just limited to Westport. Wareham, I mean, we saw coastal flooding that sent dumpsters floating down Merchant's Way and uh, Main Street. And uh, in Fairhaven, we saw seawalls that were damaged by winter weather and some coastal inundation. So really widespread impacts from these storms. You have some great photos of this uh, impacts in the various towns in uh, one of the pieces that came out this week in the New Bedford Late Light. Uh, and you spoke to a number of the people here who are involved on the front line for the towns and preparing towns for this challenge, which actually, you know, it's not a surprise. They've been looking at their vulnerability to this kind of storm impact for a while now. But one of the challenges they point to is keeping everybody else focused on the fact that this is happening. Yeah, certainly. So something that, you know, uh, a number of these town officials mentioned is that, you know, general public attention to sea level rise has waned in recent years, especially with, you know, some of the more pressing day-to-day challenges that the state is facing, uh, homelessness, housing, uh, migrant issues. Uh, You know, sea level rise is one of these long-term problems. And uh, I think another point that some of these officials really made to me is that, you know, these plans have been developing for a while now, but even some of the planning efforts have fallen off a bit. And there's uh, there's been somewhat of a gap between, you know, in terms of finding funding uh, and getting the appropriate, you know, state state reforms to, to, you know, really take action on some of these things. So we've, while we've, we've really seen all seven towns across the south coast of Massachusetts uh, you know, all of them participated in the state's municipal vulnerability preparedness program uh, and have at least conducted a workshop, if not a report, on, you know, assessing some of their climate vulnerabilities and other vulnerabilities to natural disasters. But uh, things are things. these most recent set of storms, as I mentioned, really are a wake up call that, you know, attention needs to be refocused to this. And I think the state's new initiative, the Resilient Coast Initiative, uh, that Maura Healy, our governor, is putting forward is, is also, you know, really pushing this issue back into the limelight. So, uh, yeah. Let's talk about the hurricane barrier in New Bedford Harbor. This is like, for folks who don't know, this is like a big door that can swing open and close, protecting the harbor from storm surge, right? Exactly, yeah. So it protects the harbor from storm surge and high tides and our assets. It makes the New Bedford Harbor a very attractive harbor for, for a number of reasons, but uh in recent years, we've actually seen the number of uh, hurricane barrier closures go up, and uh, some studies have linked this to higher tides and sea level rise, and projected this uh, that the rising sea levels may uh, lead the barriers to close. You know, maybe up to twice daily, which is which is not sustainable for a for a working harbor, according to uh, the team at the New Bedford Port Authority. And uh, while we've noticed it actually in recent years, I mean. The hurricane barrier closure model is rather complex. Uh, I spoke with a member of the Army Corps of Engineers who said tide levels and sea levels are not are not the only factors that go into closing it. And actually, in 2022 and 2023, we've actually seen um, hurricane barrier closures decline fairly significantly from from roughly over 18 or more over the past 10 years to, I believe it was 11 in or 14 in 2022 and 9 in 2023. So it's a very complex model, one that's really, you know, worthy of further analysis. And uh, But the general trend is an increase in closures, and uh, it's something that, you know, the authorities are going to bring up in municipal harbor planning meetings uh, in coming in coming months. There's two things you pointed to here, too, as you looked at the hurricane barrier. One is that by some projections, by 2050, if sea level rise continues, as you say, they could be 
it could be necessary to open and close it twice a day, and that's simply not uh, consistent with an operational port there. And the other is that sea level rises means that the hurricane barrier is not likely to provide as much protection in a hurricane. Certainly, certainly, and absolutely. So within with four feet of sea level rise, uh, there's been studies showing that the hurricane barrier could be overtopped in a Category 3 hurricane. Uh, I spoke with uh, team members at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and they mentioned that while there are no ongoing plans to add to add a height to the hurricane barrier at this point in the game, they are constantly assessing uh, sea level rise, and especially as their structures age, into options for repair and replacement. So, uh, while there are no plans ongoing with regards to that, it's certainly something that people are keeping an eye on. This is a, such a great three-part. Uh, report that you put together here looking at all these impacts on the South Coast. I'm wondering, what was the most surprising thing you, you came upon as you were looking at this? Uh, the most surprising thing to me was just in terms of just, I think we all tend to think of uh, coastal change and climate change and sea level rise as these really slow-moving processes. And, you know, we, we tend to isolate it in terms of these individual variables of sea levels or storms. But Really, sea level rise and these coastal changes are affecting things across the board. Mm. I mean, between the hurricane barrier to groundwater along the coastline to, uh, you know, the patterns of erosion of, mm. of, you know, coastal sand and coastal landforms. I mean, uh, Adam. The, the range of impacts is really what surprised me in, in, in writing this story. And I think it's something that people need to be taking into account. We have to leave it there. Uh, great reporting in the New Bedford Light by Adam Goldstein. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That is our show for today. I want to thank all my guests. We heard from CAI's Jeanette Barnes and Eve Zukoff, Unki Sanu of the Martha's Vineyard Times. Spoke with Ryan Bray at the Cape Cod Chronicle, Ed Miller at the Provincetown Independent, CAI's Dan Tritle. Spoke with our Statehouse reporter, Katie Lannon. We heard from Adam Goldstein there, the New Bedford Light. Thanks to Amy Vince for engineering the program. In Woods Hole, I'm Steve Junker. Thank you for listening.